Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Hello there, and welcome to Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University, which comes out each week. I'm joined, as usual, by Maria Tafaga, Dr. Maria Tafaga, I should say, from the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU, with which I'm also associated. Hi there, Maria. Hello. How are you? I'm going very well, and you? Wonderful. That's good. That's good. It's an interesting time in politics at the moment because apart from the, you know, the fact that Canberra's uh, fired back up again after the midwinter break, we've got uh, uh, Scott Morrison back in the news saying he really had nothing to do with robo-debt and that it's a political lynch mob that's been after him and uh, – We've got uh, uh, you know the issues being referred to the to the NAC, you know the National Anti Corruption Commission, and an argument or debate about what's appropriate there, what level of uh, of workload should be going to that organisation. With Albanese, the Prime Minister saying yesterday in Parliament that um, that that he doesn't think things should automatically be referred to the NAC. That ought not just become part of the normal um, sort of discourse of, of debate when issues arise in politics. I think he's probably right on that, incidentally, um, you know, just sort of assuming that everything is worthy of going to the knack and using the actual charge itself as part of the political armory in, um, in, in debates around issues that arise. I think... I think that's absolutely wise, yes. yes. Otherwise, it is at risk of, of politicisation. Yeah, that's right. So apart from the fact that it, the, the, the organisation itself would become quickly overwhelmed, uh, given that politics is is a sort of a, um, a competitive and combative business, you know, adversarial in nature, that's the way it's set up. Uh, so the idea that um, every time you've got a disagreement with someone, or in most cases where you've got a disagreement with someone and there's claims of... Uh, of, of of things being done that are not uh, you know straightforward, that someone's going to say, well, this should be referred to the NAC, and um, that probably undervalues what the NAC is there for. And it, and ideally, it shouldn't be public recommendations that are going to that organisation anyway. It should be the organisation itself, the commission, uh, undertaking work that it has either been referred to it by whistleblowers or that it has uh, undertaken of its own volition as a result of um, things that are happening in, in, the, in the public sphere or that it's able to, uh, that it's been made aware of. So, yeah, quite interesting. I mean, I think there's a, the logic does suggest, though, that there will be more referrals in the first few years of the NAC's life than later. I mean, if it is actually an effective body and, it, and it's clearly been created because there is a perception 
um, some of which is uh, reflected in Australia's corruption rankings, global corruption rankings. Yes. Um, so, so in some senses, it doesn't surprise me that there is this, I suppose, um, sort of surge, uh, because there is a lot of questions out there about several sort of programs or, or things that have sort of gone on in, in recent years. Uh, but we can only kind of hope that the knack becomes a little bit more, um, well, a bit uh, like a, a less used body yes. in, in years to come because it's actually done its job and changed behaviour. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, really, the the best thing you can say about it, apart from cleaning up things that have already happened, if it worked at its absolute optimum, and this is obviously a kind of a, uh, um, a theoretical idea rather than an actual likelihood, but if it worked at its absolute best, the very existence of the NAC would be a kind of a uh, have a sobering effect on those who were thinking about breaking the rules, and they might not do it. So it's not just about the investigations uh, that it undertakes in respect of things that have already happened. It's it's perhaps its greatest value is in helping to clean up politics and rebuild trust uh, between uh, voters and or between citizens and. Uh, public administration uh, that uh, that things are being done correctly and that there is a body there to ensure that if they're not being if there is dishonesty and skullduggery and so forth going on that uh, um, there is a mechanism there which will find out about that and people will pay a price and hopefully we get better public administration out of that it's not a bad thing not at all long overdue indeed uh, and uh, the aforementioned robo debt is one of those things that perhaps uh, you know there may be further Referrals in relation to that, and of course we've seen the recent uh, PwC controversy in relation to uh, you know decisions that were made there, information that was used for commercial gain and the like, and perhaps there are other cases. We know there have been so many cases referred, so many complaints referred to the NAC, and, uh, and not all of those will end up being investigations, but many of them will, and that uh, that is a good thing. So I think even if we do get this better level of public administration, we're going to have to go through a period where the Commission is undertaking work which results in some fairly uncomfortable um, uncomfortable right. revelations. And it's a sort of similar kind of dynamic that if you, if you, I mean, this is a point we've made in the past, right? Like there's a similar dynamic that, that underwent in the sort of 70s in which um, we sort of had this rash of, of, of royal commissions because many of the sort of institutional settings that have been put in place at a policy level were no longer seen to sort of function and they required national attention. We've, we've had a decade of royal commissions now kind of pointing at that. But what we haven't really had is, I suppose, some institutional responses to be able to respond to certain dimensions of problems with public governance. And I think it is alarming that we sort of like there's this latest story about the issuing of contracts to mm. um, from the uh, immigration or home affairs uh, department as a result of a special investigation um, in the nine papers around um, offshore detention. Yeah. yeah, in places like Nauru. Um, and so, I mean, I think I think some of the narrative around corruption and why the Commonwealth Integrity Commission, as it was at the time, was resisted was because there was this sort of narrative of of a few bad apples. But actually, what we're actually seeing is a picture here of systemic failures in our public systems of management and government. But on the flip side, like the fact that we're even finding out about them suggests that there are correctives, right? That you know the institutions are capable of 
self-correcting to some degree and that other institutions that are there to monitor and, and observe these things, Parliament for one, the media for another, you know, they, they actually are doing their job. So even though you might dislike the media, you might find Parliament, you know, useless. Like you can only imagine what the place would be like without them. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I think it's right. actually important to remember. Yeah, I think that's right. And a lot of people who, who attack the mainstream media, as they call it, the MSM, um, uh, you know, forget that a good many of these things come about because mainstream media organisations have the resources and the investment uh, size and commitment to pursue some of these stories. And if we think of the Ben Robert Smith uh, um Revelations and 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 all of those revelations associated with behaviour of troops overseas. Um, a lot of these things came about because of investigative journalism, or were certainly uh, um, you know taken advanced considerably as a result of the investment that really only media organisations with a degree of of, of scale and commercial um, heft are able to are able to pursue. The other thing I'd say, Maria, just in relation to to the point you were making about um, you know what we understand as a result of all of these revelations about about the level of corruption is that it wasn't that long ago, and people should remember this. It wasn't that long ago that neither side of politics of the major parties was in favour of a an anti-corruption commission at the federal level, and the argument that that was put, and you know, I heard people say this was that. There were anti-corruption commissions at the state level and there wasn't really any evidence of any federal corruption. At the national level, there wasn't any sort of malfeasance or Very or self-serving. Yeah, and I suspect it was probably said by some people with a degree of naivety. You know, they, they actually believed it. Um, but it was one of those problems where, yeah, you don't see it because you're not looking. Uh, these things aren't coming to light. Um, it doesn't mean they aren't there. And the flood of complaints or referrals that have been made to the new Anti-Corruption Commission uh, suggests that there's a bit of pent-up demand there, as you were saying, and um, we'll see where that goes. It is not, however, what we are talking about today. Um, we're going to talk about climate today, and I guess allied to that, climate change and climate change politics and the science and so forth. And I'm really glad to have with us in the studio Professor Jeanette Lindsay. She's from the Fenner School of Environment and Society here at ANU in the College of, of Science. Welcome, Jeanette. Hi, it's nice to be with you. It's terrific to have you. I, I, it's been too long. We should have done this a long time ago because uh, this issue of climate change, of course, has been going on for a long time, but it's re it feels really pertinent right at the moment because we've got this, um, as, as we've seen, anyone who's been watching the news can see it, you know, we've had this heat wave going on in the Northern Hemisphere, which, is, which has had all kinds of catastrophic effects. Indeed. And uh, I think it's really kind of brought home to a lot of people that really what had been being said for a long time, that we were going to start to see these things and we're starting to see them, we're starting to live them and they're very, very uncomfortable and they're very they're lethal in some cases. Indeed What's actually going on? I mean, can we just go, go to basics here? Where, mm -hmm. How does this heat wave, which is mostly in the Northern Hemisphere, come about? Well, it comes about because, in fact, the globe has been heating for decades on decades. We've been putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which trap heat that would otherwise have just exited out of the top of the atmosphere and gone off to space. Um, that's the process that generally keeps the planet in a sort of temperature equilibrium, if yeah. you like. And that has been disrupted 
by human activity since the Industrial Revolution and the consumption of and burning of fossil fuels and mm. so on. And land clearing is the other yeah. big one, which often doesn't get a mention. Um, but it is huge because by converting uh, natural ecosystems into agricultural land or urban spaces or for infrastructure or whatever we do, what we're doing is removing possible absorption areas for carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and all sorts of other processes that help to regulate the planetary atmosphere and keep things pretty comfortable. They Plants take up carbon dioxide and they give off oxygen, yeah. for example. Yeah. So, you know, this is all part of an overall system and we really have to look at it as a whole system to understand what's going on. So by disrupting the Earth's natural cycles, uh, more and more of us doing so over time, we're now plus 8 billion on the planet, uh, we've effectively altered our environment in a way that is extremely detrimental to us. And the way that it's sometimes referred to is to consider it as an unplanned experiment now, if you're doing really good experimental science, what you do is you have a control. Mm. So you have a system set up which mirrors reality, and then you have another system which is controlled in order to mimic the change that you're yeah, trying so to model. so it's identical in every way except for except the change for you're the change. making. Yeah. Now, of course, the system we're messing with is – planet A, our home, mm. Earth, and we don't have planet B as our control. Mm. So we are living through and experiencing the impacts of the changes that have been made to the system. And in many ways, they've been made quite willfully because it's not as if we haven't known for a very long time that by putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, it would raise the temperature. But when you say we haven't known... I mean, it's an interesting concept that what, the, the we, right? Because mm -hmm. it hasn't been completely accepted by all, no, um, even true. though that's becoming the, the 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 naysayers of this against this, uh, you know, the people who ignore the science and all of, all of the evidence and have done so willfully and and politically for a period of time. Mm -hmm. My sense is they are. They are in recession, if I can put it like that. They are, uh, <laughs> Let's in, hope so. In retreat would be a better way of putting it, um, some degree of retreat. Yeah. And I even read uh, a conservative commentator yesterday complaining about the, the impact that it's having on the economies uh, in the Northern Hemisphere mm -hmm. and the way the economies of the Northern Hemisphere, particularly the tourist economies yeah. of the Northern Hemisphere, are being dramatically affected and a lot of their long-term assumptions about expenditure, the investments they've made and so forth, everything from airlines to, to, to hotels and resorts and, and, and countries that have you know, their economies built at least to a large extent on summer tourism mm. uh, in Europe in particular, um, having to rethink this because a lot of these places, and we've seen these, you know, the Greek islands, you know, beautiful historic Greek islands that we've, that we've known about for years and which are now facing dramatic possibility of dramatic change. They have vegetation that, unlike Australia, is not designed to burn. Yes, exactly. And it exactly. is burning. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, when I say we have known for a long time, the scientific community has known for a long mm. time. And in fact, you know, the, the earliest documented experimentation that was done to show what the impact of, of carbon dioxide could be if released in sufficient quantities into the atmosphere and that it would result in warming of the planet um, was done in the late 1800s. So, you know, we, we're talking about more than a century ago that 
that that science was out there and it was reasonably well known in the scientific community, but it didn't become uh, sort of common, I suppose you could say, or or a real focus of scientific concern f- until probably 1950s, 60s. There mm. was a bit of a, a focus. And then once we hit the 1980s and into the 90s, that's when it really started to to take off and get a great deal of attention. And that was because of the work of quite a, a large number of key scientists who worked very hard to get this onto the agenda and to get it being discussed in a, a general population context, if you like, so that, that it was part of the community conversation. And the, the Rio Earth Summit – in, in 1991, that was uh, very instrumental in getting this off the ground um, because that was a, a conference, a, a meeting of all countries with representation. We went off to Rio and had this big meeting. There'd been a lot of work done in the lead up to that for years, actually, mm. to put together all the science around global heating and climate change and the the impact on ecological systems and human systems and everything else um, in order to have that as a very informed uh, forum. And out of that came uh, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Kyoto Protocol and then much later, 2015, the Paris Agreement and these sort of terms, the Copenhagen Accords and so on and so on, which we've we've sort of heard bandied around and they get reported as they happen and there's a bit of attention on them and then they sort of recede into the background from the general consciousness, I think. But they are there underpinning global action and national action on addressing the that's reasons the, for what's going on. That's the tension though, isn't it? Global action and national action. It almost exactly. frames the problem. Uh, really we have does. a global problem. We have the requirement for national action. Yes. We might be in now what you might call the Urgentine period, which is the uh, the, the period where it is it, even the most recalcitrant and, and blind of people, or willfully blind that is, of people um, in relation to this uh, cannot deny it. And we're getting this sort of galloping effect, but... Um, yeah. Um, it's the, the 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 story you just laid out, and I, I really am grateful that you did because uh, it explains just how long this has been. There's been a scientific consensus about it, and the evidence, of course, has just been building up more and more mm. all the time. But there's a real mismatch between, as I say, between nation states and and their sort of political economic interests, yeah. and the global problem. And also, there's a there's a mismatch, I suppose, between the science and the politics, which is mm. to say, climate change fell into the kind of the, the sort of taxonomic grid of politics, you know, the the, the binary of left-right, which yeah. has been really quite damaging for mm. it. There's no actual logical reason why being uh, concerned about the environment is a left-wing preoccupation, but that's the way it's tended to fall. And as a result, people on the right in many cases have sort of tribally taken a, a, a an, an antithetic position mm. on it. Mm. That's true, and I think you see this playing out in many places around the world. Um, it's it's you see it in America, you know, where the the left right divide I think is particularly stark. Yeah, um, and you see the opposite, or have seen the opposite. It's less true just at the minute, I think, in UK politics, where a consensus was reached um, years ago politically that climate change or global heating, as I actually refer. Prefer yes. to refer to it yes. um, was to be treated in a bipartisan way, and it was too important to allow it to become a 
point of political differentiation. And as a result of that, we saw the UK enact various forms of legislation around sort of very practical things like um, energy efficiency in buildings and you know building codes that made homes and uh, business premises and so on more energy efficient, therefore using less power and therefore requiring less power generation and thereby assisting the transition to more renewable forms of energy uh, because there was less lessening the demand, if you like, on the fossil fuel-driven energy energy production. So that's just one example. So there's there's a, a lot of evidence that bipartisan support for action on reducing emissions, for mitigation of, of climate change, is, is very effective. And by the way, that's a term that often gets misunderstood, mitigation. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, I've noticed that there's quite a lot of discourse around the term mitigation, where it's assumed that what you're talking about is reducing the impacts of the fact that the planet is warming, mitigating the impacts. Whereas, in fact, when scientists talk about it, we're talking about mitigating the emissions, reducing the emissions that cause the warming in the first place. Right. And so that's that's something just that I think it, it's an example of how there can be very legitimate misunderstandings between the scientific community and the the general public, the the social discourse around topics like this, um, which, if left uncorrected, I think just persist and and perhaps lead to a degree of obfuscation, maybe, which is unintended on both sides. I have an unfair question. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, your point about language, I think is actually a a really interesting one. You know, Mm. scientists communicate in in a very different way to the average uh, citizen, right? Um, Mm. They, they, they talk in the language of theories, of probabilities, of, of likelihoods, of odds ratios. Mm. Um, and, and, I mean, I mean do, do you think that is actually, you, you know, you gave the example of mitigation here where, like, two different people hear a different kind of word. But, I mean, do, do you think that is actually one of the, the reasons why we've sort of struggled to make progress on this issue beyond the obvious culprit, which is political actors not doing Sure, enough? sure. Ooh, I think you're quite right that there's a scientific language and an understanding that underpins that language and, and use of terminology, which is not necessarily um, shared across all of society. And I think a lot of scientists in all sorts of fields, and I'm not just talking here about environmental scientists or climate scientists, have worked hard to find ways to communicate which are scientifically meaningful and rigorous, but still con- convey the meaning in ways that that people without that background and training can better understand. And I, mean, I think it's true that not all people are, are the best communicators. And I think everybody knows that. Some people are better at it than others. And I think there are some in the scientific community who perhaps find it more difficult than others to remove themselves a little bit from the rigorous language and expression that is trained into us as we develop Mm. our scientific careers. And it's, it's perfectly understandable that that would be the case. And I think one of the key concepts here, which has been difficult in the concept, in in the context of climate change and global heating is that of uncertainty. And it's, it's often a, a bit of a stumbling block for people to understand what scientists mean when they talk about 
um, a particular phenomenon. You know, in this case, uh, let's say the am- amount of carbon dioxide that needs to be in the atmosphere or other greenhouse gases that need to be there in order to have the planet reach two degrees of global heating. Okay. Now, there, there's uncertainty around that. And what I mean when I say that is that the number, the, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere that would get us to that point, it could be, you know, 50 parts per million one way or 50 parts per million the other way. It doesn't mean we don't understand the science and that we don't understand the process. It simply means that we cannot with absolute accuracy to 10 decimal places say exactly how many parts per million because yeah, this is a, an extremely complex system. It's the difference between system. a forecast and a prediction. It right? is. Like, well, yes, indeed. Or a scenario, you know. We work a lot with scenarios in the field of, of climate change and, and global heating where we're projecting into the future based on where we are now, what has happened in the past, the trajectory that has led us to where we are and where we project things are likely to go if certain decisions are made and various consequences flow from those decisions. And those could be decisions about cutting emissions and going fully renewable. It could be decisions around political choices. It could be decisions around economic decision, um, choices mm. that are made um, by nation states or by companies even. You know, we're living in the age now where individual companies, as we well know, um, often have revenues that exceed national budgets and are in a position to make decisions which can have a material impact on a phenomenon like global heating. Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a very short break and be back in a moment. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Now, we were talking just before the break about, I guess, uncertainty and the inevitable uh, nature of uh, uncertainty being a factor in in projections, particularly when they're based on evidence. And that evidence is building up all the time, of course, and that makes the models more sophisticated and more accurate and, and there's a process going on. But the politics, you know, the people who have been opposed to this have weaponized this this bit in the, you know, this this 2% or whatever it might have been at any given time. Because what they've been in the, in the game of doing is manufacturing doubt, of, of, of leveraging doubt. There's not an absolute consensus on this. There, here's a scientist who disagrees. Uh, they can't tell you for certain that this outcome will occur at this date on, on account of this amount of carbon or whatever it might be, as you were just saying. 
And that, in a political sense, has been absolutely kind of crucial for them. I mean, it's been really sort of um, leveraged up and, and, and in a paralyzing way. I mean, I think what I've seen in this country, and I think it's been the case in, in, in other democracies, you mentioned the US in particular, perhaps a bit less so in some of the European democracies, but um, this doubt question has become political fodder and it has led to a paralysis, mm. uh, you know, a, a, a go slow and an inability really to take decisions. Think about where we would be. I was thinking about this the other day, actually, when I was looking at uh, Australia's policy, the, the sort of debates we're having at the moment, looking at the Northern Hemisphere, which we'll come to again in a sec. But, you know, the um, where we would be had we actually done what we set out to do in 2007 and established a, an emissions trading scheme and made the kinds, put the market um, uh, signals in to uh, preference investment in renewable energy and so forth and really changed this economy. Where we would be sitting now compared to where we are, we just lost a lot of time and lots of governments have. And that's because the politics and the science has been kind of almost working, they've been working in, um, in opposition to each other. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I agree with you completely. And I think for me, it's it's saying that it's the politics. It's also the vested interests that are mm. influencing the politics. And in a way, it's almost more those vested interests. Because if you think about... Are you talking about like the oil and gas yes, industry? Yes, I am. I am. So, you know, when you think about what those industries and the people involved in them and financing them and benefiting from them stand to lose potentially and not well not in, not potentially actually mm. by defossil fuelization yeah. <laughs> if i can coin a term um, of energy production that's the reason they exist that's where all their money comes from and unless they are able to completely recast themselves as renewable energy generators say or in some other way move on from the fossil fuel era there's a great deal to be lost there and i think the vested interests of that are are wrapped up in what really seems to drive everything which is power and money um <laughs> In, in those contexts of primary production and the fossil fuel industry in particular have had an enormous influence. And we it's come to light that there has been huge investment from that quarter into denialism campaigns and in influencing politicians and that sort of thing uh, in order to keep those sectors going as long as they possibly can, knowing full well that eventually they're going to have to stop. Yeah. Because if we are not to have runaway global heating and the worst consequences of the tra the trajectory we're currently on in the future, we have to leave at least some of that fossil fuel in the ground. And in fact, we have to stop now. Yeah, we had we we've run out of time. But we've it's not wasted. just us, it's not just us burning coal here, is it? I mean, it's us digging it up and selling it, exporting huge yes. quantities of it to economies that are using it in 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 great amounts, to, you know, to exactly. power their electricity grids and so forth, and the, and it's economic for them to do it that way. So we're part of a of a global problem in that sense, yes, yeah, we are. as well as the global heating problem. Yes. We're part of the causation problem, and we and our economy is built. To a large extent, on that. Yes, it is. It's hard to turn that ship around. It is very, especially hard when to you've got people, people in politics, 
finding ways to maximise the advantage that they can get from resisting. Mm. And we've seen, I mean, Tony Abbott was elected in 2013 yep. on scrapping the carbon price. Yes. That's, that, was, that was it, you know, that was the, the big thing really. Um, that was the decision the Australian voters made too, by the way. I think the Australian voters were very comprehensively misinformed about what the carbon price actually was and the impact it would have. And that's been another powerful weapon that's been used, I think, by the denialist mm. um, sector, if you can call it that, um, in that they've been able to use language, going back to Maria's point about language, they've been able to use key words very effectively to scare people. Effectively, these have been scare tactics. But people are now getting scared by what's actually happening. So let's go that's to let, let's yes, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's that's that's here and now though, and it, yeah. it's when climate change starts uh, global heating, to use the, the the term you prefer, and I prefer to actually, mm. um, uh, when that starts to become here and now, mm -hmm. then it, it, denial becomes uh, uh, you know even more foolhardy. Absolutely, uh, and we're seeing that now, of course. Mm -hmm. What is actually happening though? We, we've seen two of the hottest. I think they may they, they may have. Been, I think July was the hottest month. It was on and record. June had been the hottest month on record. And and a couple and, of dates in July were the hottest day on record. I yes. don't know if there was a third, but certainly there was there, there was two. a couple there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what, what's the What's actually happening? What's actually happening? Yeah. yeah. So what's what's been going on? As I said earlier, is we've we've been you know continually basically putting uh, the products of fossil fuel combustion into the atmosphere mm -hmm. and of land clearing. The greenhouse gases that go into the atmosphere are often referred to in a sort of um, consolidated way under the heading of CO two. Yeah. But it also includes methane and nitrous oxide and various other gases. And some of those but, are vastly more. Oh, much more uh, powerful yeah. as as warming agents in yeah. trapping outgoing yeah. methane heat. Methane in particular. Yes, yeah. it is. Um, and that's that's another worry because melting permafrost in the northern hemisphere, for example, is releasing quite large amounts of yes. methane because rotting vegetation, which has been trapped in the ice and is now being freed up to yeah. go off into the atmosphere, is contributing. Anyway, but so so there's more and more of this. Um, greenhouse gas being emitted, and there's less of a capacity of the Earth system to absorb it. So what's been happening is that natural processes, which involve CO2 uh, in particular, being absorbed by vegetation and being absorbed into the ocean, have been basically getting us out of even more trouble, if you like, for a long time. So about roughly, very roughly, 25% of the emissions that we make on an annual basis uh, have been absorbed into the soil and the vegetation and another 25% into the ocean. Those are rough figures, but mm -hmm. it gives you a rough idea. So yeah. it's only about half that ends up in the atmosphere. Now, the worry is that as we reduce vegetation cover, and that's going on everywhere all the time because of the growing population, we need to feed everybody, we need to house everybody, you know, so basically we spread out. Uh, and we, plus we take cheap options, right? Oh, of course yeah, we take yeah. cheap options. And, you know, everybody wants McDonald's, isn't mm, that right? Mm. So you clear the Amazon mm. for rainforest in order to have beef cattle farming mm. to supply that demand elsewhere North America and Europe and Australia as well. So there's, you know, there's, there's that sort of tension going on. But this, so the emissions increase and they don't just go into the air and disappear the same year. They accumulate. 
so there's a, a half-life, if you like, for all of these greenhouse gases of differing, link, differing lengths. CO2 will persist in the atmosphere for at least 100 years, if not longer. Some of the other gases less, some more. They all contribute to the global heating phenomenon that we see. What it means is that they've just been accumulating over time. The net effect has been accumulation. Heat has been trapped in the atmosphere, and that heat has, some of it, gone into the ocean. And when I say some, it's about 90%. So what we are seeing as elevated air temperatures, which heat us up and make us uncomfortable and aware that something's happening, actually it would have been a lot worse if we didn't have 75% of the planet covered by ocean, which has been absorbing a large part of that heat, the vast majority of it. The fact that the ocean is warming is extremely important because it absorbs not only at the surface like the land surface does, very very superficial. You know, if you're on a hot beach and you dig mm. a little hole, it's mm. much cooler underneath. Yeah. I think most people have had that experience. Um, but with the ocean, the surface layer of the water heats up, the water moves around, ocean currents, the wind dynamic, blows over yeah. it, it's dynamic, the heat is transferred downwards. Expeditions have now measured uh, heating of the ocean down below 3,000 meters. The, the average depth of the ocean is 4,000 meters. So this extra heat from the atmosphere has been, and directly into the ocean from the sun impacting on the ocean, etc., has been transferred downwards almost to the bottom of the ocean by now because it's been going on long enough to do so. That means that there's a huge source of excess heat in the earth system that is available long after we turn off the fossil fuel emissions and deal with Devegetation of the land surface. And this heat of the land surface and of the oceans mm. then affects the atmosphere. And that goes back to the atmosphere, mm. you see. And so what we've seen in the Northern Hemisphere this summer is an extremely warm North Atlantic. The Gulf Stream is way above average temperature off the North American East Coast. So the northern coast of the US and the coast of Canada, the East Coast of Canada, that then takes warmer water across the North Atlantic. And that's always, it, it's, it's been there for a very long time. That's essentially what stops Britain, England from being colder than it is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It is. Absolutely. And it's why in areas of, of England, such as Cornwall, you've got the most beautiful gardens in some places which have plants growing, which you would never expect to be growing at those latitudes in the Northern Hemisphere, but they can grow there because the Gulf Stream is keeping it warmer. So yeah. there's all of that. It's a good thing, not a bad thing, but it's extra hot at the moment. The whole Caribbean, where that, that ocean system actually originates in the tropics, is warmer than usual. That's being carried across the Northern Hemisphere towards Europe. The Mediterranean has been extremely warm. So I think I, I saw some figures of sort of four to five degrees mm. above average mm. for this time of the year in summer, which, when it's warm enough. Yeah. Um, and so that has provided an extra heat source. Plus, to the south of Europe, still in the Northern Hemisphere, you've got North Africa. And you've got the Sahara Desert sitting there, and that is absorbing very large amounts of heat at the surface, which then contributes to the formation of a big high-pressure system there that pushes hot air towards Europe, just yeah, in so, the normal you get this, run of atmospheric circulation. That's right, and you get the blocking of yes. what would be low-pressure systems that might come through exactly. as a result of these enormous high-pressure systems, and, and as a result, the, you get this kind of 
almost a compounding effect. Yes, you yeah. do. And what's happening as the globe is heating is that weather systems are, of course, responding to that. They are driven by heat causing pressure differences across the globe, yeah. lower and higher. The yeah. wind then blows from low, from high to, to uh, sorry, from low to high pressure, and and so on. Mm. So. Um, essentially weather systems exist to transfer heat from the Earth's surface upwards and then move it around. Mm. And that's exactly what they're doing. But because it's getting hotter and because the heating at the surface is not uniform everywhere, it's causing there to be in some areas of the world what we call higher overturning. And that means that the rising of air in the tropics and then the descent in the subtropical locations, such as the Sahara, um, is intensifying. Now, we have the same thing in Australia. So we have rising air into the north of us, and it descends into the high-pressure systems in the Australian region right. and around the southern hemisphere. And that is intensifying, which is making the high pressures higher, which further limits the penetration of low-pressure systems that might bring rainfall and a bit of relief. And it's causing them to shift, uh, in our case, southward and push the cold fronts away a little bit. It's what's happening right now in our Australian winter, why it's so warm at the minute. And it's also what has been happening in the Northern Hemisphere with the situation in Europe, in North America, and in, in China, for example, where they've had extreme heat and now flooding. Yes, I saw 52 degrees in one place, 52.2 yes, or something. That's um, right, new record for, yeah. for China. Um, now, you know, hot high temperatures are concerning in their own right because they have an impact on everything that lives, basically. Um, so humans can exist comfortably in temperatures up to about 36 to 38 degrees. And then beyond that, unless we take extra precautions, our core body temperature starts to become compromised and you can become heat stressed and heat stress can be lethal. Mm. So Yeah, we often hear this said that more people die from, from yes. uh, severe heat than severe cold. Absolutely, that yeah. is true. And the heat stress as a cause of death is as recognized by the World Health Organization as being now uh, an increasing cause of death around the world and a weather-related cause of mortality. And that's a, a real issue. Um, and it's, it's not just that. There's also lost productivity, for example. So, you know, mm. there's been all sorts of studies done which show that in higher and higher temperatures, especially when humidity is also involved, which it is in some instances, uh, what the productivity of human labor reduces. So we become less productive when we're too hot. And we should because it's our body telling us that we have to slow down not move around so quickly, do less, get in the shade, drink lots of water, rest, and stay cool. Otherwise, our core body temperature can rise, and that's an existential threat. So, Jeanette, I yes. mean, is this reversible, or is it? are we sort of locked into this now, and, and mm. it's about mitigating anything worse? <sighs> On a timescale of a human lifespan, this is not reversible. On the timescale of several thousands of years, probably yes. The longer we let it keep going, the more it will intensify. And the way the system works is that we, what we do today locks in the future for about 30 years. That's how the, the natural systems process the changes we're making to the environment, okay, at the rate we're currently making them and to the extent that we are. So 
we are already locked in to what is like is going to happen in about 30 years time our vision of what that might look like and how soon we might see some of the more extreme responses of the earth system to this disruption is not perfect climate scientists like myself and the ecologists that we work with and so on had foreseen these sorts of consequences like we've been seeing in the northern hemisphere this summer as coming down the track and we've been warning about it for some time what we hadn't foreseen in on the whole was how soon it would happen these are the sorts of consequences that we had thought would be more likely by about 2050 and is that because the baseline uh, temperature increase um, then interacts with the cyclical mm. weather patterns and exacerbates them, makes them sort of exponentially or perhaps not literally exponentially but significantly worse? That's part of it and I think that's a very important thing for for everyone to just bear in mind. You know, the, the baseline temperature increase, it's a bit like that whole analogy of putting a, a frog in a pot and then in cold water mm. and then gradually turning up the heat mm. and you don't realise you're in trouble until it's too late and that's exactly what's happened. We've been gradually turning up the heat Humans are extremely adaptable, and so we've adapted collectively and individually in various ways, some of them quite damaging <laughs> to the continuation of the warming. And, and so we're now in the situation where the baseline temperature is in some parts of the world two degrees or more above what it was 50 years ago. That's a really important point to make, isn't it? Because, because we often think about it when we call it global heating or climate change or whatever, we, we tend to think about it in uniform terms. Yeah. And we talk about the global temperature rise in, in you know, decimal points. Yes. And this to lay ears is, perhaps doesn't sound all that severe. But it's not uniform, that's what you're saying. No, it's not no. uniform. So there are parts of southeastern Australia, as an example, where the temperature trend, as defined by the Bureau of Meteorology data, has been 0.2 to 0.3 of a degree per decade for the last 40 years. And if you add that up, you very quickly get to more than one degree. And if you talk about going back to the beginning of the record, which is in 1910, it's already exceeded two degrees higher than it was then. So that is highly significant. Even two degrees doesn't sound like a lot. You know, mm. if, you, if you're cold in winter like we are here in Canberra at the minute and you, you turn up your thermostat by two degrees, you can go from being just uncomfortable to perhaps slightly uh, uncomfortable in a, in a too hot way, mm. too cold to slightly too warm at a two degree temperature difference. That's possible. Um, but it doesn't sound like a lot. But what it is is enough to cause the extremes of weather, the extremes yeah. of temperature to become more so. So we've not only seen an increase in the frequency of extreme events, so extremely hot weather, extremely cold weather, droughts, floods, etc. They're getting more frequent, more common, but the intensity of of them has increased. And that is happening around this warming trend. So, yeah, so intensity and frequency, yes. which, which actually leads me to, um, I, I suppose this is the one of the questions that's been in my mind about this is, uh, you know, when we going back to the discussion about what we know in the, from the models, from the evidence, uh, what we can predict where we are at the present, is there any view within the scientific community, your expert community on this, about the, the risk of sort of unforeseen consequences, that is, of a certain tipping point where 
weather patterns, perhaps the the direction of the Gulf Stream changes further, or or currents that that that, that exist at the moment literally take an entirely different path as yes. a result of, and 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 then there being some level of chaos. This this is an excellent question. Thank you very much. Uh, the whole concept of tipping points is one that is very much of concern to us. And it's one that has received quite a deal of scientific attention. The problem with tipping points, uh, so first of all, perhaps I should explain. Um, one way, perhaps a, a way that resonates with a lot of people, imagine that you've, you've got one of those, um, you know, thin, clear plastic rulers. Mm-hmm. And it's a 30 centimeter ruler. You're holding it in both hands in front of you and you just flex it slightly. I think we can all imagine that. You can flex it a bit and you know, that's fine. It bends a bit and that's okay. And then if you just keep going, you're not conscious of flexing any harder, it suddenly snaps. Yeah. Keep your face away from it because it may snap exactly. twice in two places. Yeah. Exactly. And that is a tipping point. Mm. So natural systems are flexible. They are buffered by the processes that go on within them, and they can deal with quite an amount of change in many instances. But you can only push them so far, and you don't always recognize when you've pushed them too far. And this is why species go extinct, for example. They've been pushed too far, and we didn't know until it was too late. Right. So tipping points in the climate system are many, and one of the things about them that I think is particularly pertinent is that they are all connected to each other. This is all part of a global system which involves the atmosphere, the ocean, the earth, uh, the solid, you know, the, the soil, the, the vegetation, and it involves the ice. So Antarctic summer sea, sea ice, or in fact Antarctic winter sea ice, is at an all-time low for the period of records that we have. And in fact, the glaciological community doesn't know why exactly. So the Antarctic ice for the first, not exactly the first time, but certainly to the greatest extent is showing signs of being under great stress. We've had record temperatures recorded, winter temperatures recorded in Antarctica, eight degrees above average over parts of the land. In the Arctic, eight eight degrees above average, yes. I mean, it's still very cold, (laughs) but it's it's very significant change. Hugely significant. The Arctic. The summer sea ice has been thinning and shrinking over the years, going up and down a bit from year to year, but the trend is very clearly downwards. And these caps are highly reflective of radiant. Uh, exactly. Uh, uh, and so yeah. what happens, you've got highly reflective white snow-covered surfaces, reflects away the sunlight, stays cool. You melt a bit, you expose a darker ocean, that absorbs more energy from the sun, it warms up a bit, that warm water goes under the ice, melts it from underneath, which is something that we didn't initially realize what was happening, but of course is, and that melts a bit more ice, and its air temperature around the ice sort rises, of a cascading effect. and you get what's called a positive feedback loop. Yeah. There is now a growing thinking, I wouldn't call it a consensus yet, but it is growing, that we may have passed the tipping point threshold for the Arctic summer sea ice. Now, what does that mean when you pass the threshold? Well, it means that natural processes are not going to bring it back. It isn't all gone yet, Mm. but natural processes will not be able to regrow that ice to any extent such as it had before, and eventually it will not be there in the summer. 
and potentially, eventually, it will not be there in the winter either. Now, the Arctic sea ice is not actually a problem for us in terms of sea level rise because it's floating in the ocean and it's like ice cubes in a glass. They displace their volume and when it melts, it doesn't actually change the level in the glass appreciably at all. So that's not a problem. But the Greenland ice cap and the glaciers on the North American and Eurasian continents are also melting and that's putting water and into the oceans land. and they're yeah. on land. Yeah. So that is raising sea levels. Yeah. And we're seeing sea level rising everywhere due to thermal expansion. It, as it warms, it mm. the volume expands. Yeah. So there's that going on, but there's also this contribution from the ice, which has now overtaken the warming as the major contributor to rising sea levels. And the, the um, projections now for sea level rise are that we're looking at over a meter um, by the end of the century and possibly sooner. And that's that's big. You know, there's been some modelling done for Australia where uh, they've just looked at, they've, they've done a sort of G, GIS, geographic information system-based mapping of the elevation of the land around, around the coastline. And they've looked at particularly the populated areas where, where of course, most of our major cities are on the coast. And that it's shown, for example, that a f- you know, fair proportion of the Brisbane CBD and the location of Brisbane Airport with new runways and so on would be underwater. So... So finally, when it starts you know, affecting, you know, urban centres uh, with political clout and commercial yeah. implications, big investments involved and so forth, big assets. Uh, Unfortunately, by then get... it's too late yeah, because yeah, by... you're locked in for another 30 years of it yeah. getting worse yeah. before you have a hope of seeing a real impact. What we are seeing, I think, and why we're seeing the Northern Hemisphere doing what it's doing right now is that there is what we call the sensitivity of the climate to the disruptions that are being pushed on it. And I think there's, I wouldn't say a lack of understanding. We know that it's sensitive, but what we don't fully understand is how sensitive and which little prod or jerk in in a particular direction is going to cause a tipping point threshold to to be crossed. And the thing with the tipping points, you know, I've just been talking about the ice, but you know the the whole um, general um, long term circulation of the global ocean. It's called the global ocean conveyor system, uh, which involves large masses of water sinking down from the surface to the deep ocean and then traveling and then coming up again and so on. And this connects all the global oceans together. Now the main drivers for that water going down from the surface to the bottom is around the margins of the Arctic ice and so in the Northern Hemisphere, in the North Atlantic and along the coast of Antarctica. Now, both of those areas are showing signs of real retreat. strain yeah. and retreat. Mm. And mm. as the ice retreats, fresh water is added to, to the ocean. That reduces the density of the ocean water. The density relies on being cold and saline. Saline, yeah. So that means that the rate of water sinking decreases. And you could eventually, in some parts of the ocean, end up with a sort of stratification where you no longer get water sinking in this way or rising in yeah, the same way. Yeah, and that way. goes back to that point and about And there's that whole point kinds, you were yeah, making. Yeah. And the Global Ocean Conveyor plays a role in things like the Southeast and South Asian monsoons. 
systems, mm. um, which are sort of overlaid onto that. We've just been messing with all of this without understanding absolutely. it for centuries. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, of course, industrialization has just absolutely kind of telescoped that, uh, really, really yes. fast-tracked it. Uh, and then we've overlaid it with politics and economics and self-interest and, and, self and human yes. delusion, frankly. You yes. know, that, oh, that capacity we have yes. to delay things, you yes. know, to, to not look at problems that we don't have to look at straight away because they're down the track. And, and I think there's a capacity in humanity to, to be hopeful in all sorts of different ways. And we pin yeah. our hopes on different things. We pin our hopes on science whilst actually ignoring it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's part of it. And, and I think in this instance, there's been quite a lot of pinning our hopes on technical solutions, technological solutions that are going to buy us out of trouble. Mm. Um, and there's, Cost so there's, free technological solutions. I'm sorry I missed that, Maria. I was being sarcastic. <laughs> she said saying. cost free. Technological. Oh, absolutely yeah. cost free. Absolutely. Yeah. We can pump. Uh, sulfur, uh, sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere and in sufficient volume, which would require actually permanent locations on the Earth's surface with permanent connections to the stratosphere that would do this pumping uh, to keep enough up there to provide a shield that would reflect away the sun's radiation and cool the surface. Uh, yes, mm, mm. well, no, technologically no. not, and in fact, cost-effectively, absolutely not. That would be quite a structure. Mirrors in space, you know, to reflect away the sunlight. Yes, Well, yes. technologically, maybe a lot we of these, could. A lot of these but... ideas come from the mad right, and people who spent most of the time denying it's a problem in the first place. Um, yes, interesting. Look, this has been an absolutely fascinating and long overdue discussion, really. I've learned so much. Mm. I'm sure you have, Maria. Oh, it's been an absolute education. Yeah, really amazing. And I'm so so glad that we've done it now and we'll have to have you back and, and talk more about these problems because there's there's so much more. I think so many yes. of these issues we can we can go into further. Um it really is and I'd love to come back. Including the uh you know, the the, the capacity for individuals to make difference, oh, yes. you know, which I think has taken a long time to land in some yeah. ways. You know, we, we all tended to think that, you know, this was a bigger problem and individual decisions didn't matter, but people are taking things increasingly into their own hands, you mm. know, with, with uh, solar PV and uh, yes. decisions about recycling and a, and a range of other things. Arguably, people are ahead of their governments now in yep. all kinds of places all around the world. Mm. And... Um, yeah, so politics uh, needs to, as a as a discipline, needs to pull its socks up, and um, we can talk about that some more as well. Absolutely, Professor Jeanette Lindsay and Dr. Maria Tafaga, thank you. Thank you, thanks, Jeanette. Real pleasure. Yeah, it's been terrific. But just before I go, I'm going to um, just make a another announcement. You may have heard me refer to uh, the Voice to Parliament dialogue that is happening at ANU. Uh, this is really an announcement for people in the Canberra region and indeed uh, for people listening to this podcast rather quickly after it comes out because I'm talking about uh, Wednesday, August the 2nd. Uh, but if you want to learn more about the Voice to Parliament, ANU is hosting a special dialogue in Canberra on Wednesday, uh, the uh, 2nd of August. I'll be hosting the discussion and will be joined by Professor Megan Davis, co-chair of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, Labor Senator Jana Stewart and Liberal Senator Andrew Bragg, among some others. And it promises to be a really dynamic and interesting session and it will deal with some some of the questions that are coming up that people are raising uh, in social media and in other places. 
really quite basic questions as well as some more um, involved ones. Uh, no question is out of order and um, I think it'll be a really useful exercise in explaining uh, what is proposed here for this referendum and helping people come to a conclusion about where they stand on it. So if you're interested in taking part, you can find more details via the link in this episode description. That is Democracy Sausage for this week. Talk again soon. Bye.